I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. So we continue through our morning series through the book of Acts. And this morning we will hear God's word from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Just a, a brief recap of where we are. Today is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples. They have begun to declare the mighty works of God in languages that they had not learned. The many Jews who are in Jerusalem from all over the world are hearing the disciples, and they hear them in their own native tongues. They are amazed, and they are asking, what does this mean? And so the Apostle Peter stands up to explain what this means. He is just quoted from the prophet Joel, explaining that this is the promised day of salvation and day of the Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied when God would send his Holy Spirit upon all flesh, which brings us to verse 22. But before we hear God's word, let us ask the Lord once again for his help. Father, we do humbly come before you as we prepare to hear your holy word. Help us to understand what this means. Help us to believe that it is true. And help us by your grace to obey and live in response to this word. Direct us once again to see Jesus, this Jesus revealed in your word. We ask this in his name. Amen. The Apostle Peter continues to preach and says, beginning in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God to us this morning. One of the goals of salvation is conformity to Christ. Paul says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So salvation is not just forgiveness, it is transformation. When God saves us, he remakes us to now look more and more like Jesus. Yet, too often, we try to remake Jesus to look more like us. We want a Jesus who always agrees with us, who always affirms us. We don't want a Jesus who will challenge us, change us, convict us, correct us, or try to direct us. We want a cheerleader Jesus. We want a therapist Jesus. We, we want a comfortable teddy bear Jesus. We don't want a Lord and Christ Jesus. We want a Jesus who is subject to us, not sovereign over us. So many claim to follow Jesus, but some of those are not following the one who is the image of the invisible God. They are following a figment of their own imagination. But faith in a figment cannot save you. And Pentecost is the declaration of salvation. It was a new day, an opportunity for salvation. It was a public service announcement that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But who is this saving Lord we are to call upon? See, to say, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, that wasn't anything new for the Jews. They always knew that. But Peter says there is now a very specific Lord that we are to call upon. What is his name? Well, that's the question driving the rest of Peter's sermon. For he knows there is only one saving Lord whom we can call upon. There is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that name and that Lord is Jesus. 
Not just any Jesus, this Jesus, Peter says three times. This Jesus is the Lord we call upon for salvation. This Jesus who is the man from Nazareth, the one God revealed to be both Lord and Christ. And so the Lord we must call upon for salvation is not an imaginary Jesus, but is this Jesus revealed to us in Scripture. So we're going to take time asking the question, who is this Jesus? And we will learn that he is the one God proclaims. He is the one God has raised up. And he is the one that God has crowned. So first, he is the one God proclaims. When the Spirit descended at Pentecost and the disciples began declaring the mighty works of God in languages that they had never known, and the Jews who had gathered from all over the world heard the disciples speaking in their native tongues, they began asking, what does this mean? And Peter explains this means the promised day of salvation, which the prophet Joel foretold, has come. It means God has now poured out his spirit upon his people. The new covenant and the new age of the spirit had begun. Yet on this day, this day of the spirit, Peter stands up to preach Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Does that surprise you? The Holy Spirit has come. Peter's just quoted a, a text about the Holy Spirit. But Peter starts to preach about Jesus. We might expect a sermon on the Holy Spirit. After all, the Holy Spirit, that's the poor third person of the Trinity that nobody seems to talk about. We just neglect. We don't think about him. This would have been an opportunity for Peter to finally just teach people about the Holy Spirit. But Peter proclaims the name of Jesus. Why? Because that is who the Spirit has empowered him to proclaim. Peter's sermon is the Spirit's sermon. For you remember back in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit is the power to speak in these other languages and the Spirit is driving the content of what they say. He is empowering them to declare the mighty works of God, and the mighty works he wants declared are the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. So I said last week that when the Spirit fills the heart, he opens the mouth. But he doesn't open the mouth for hysterical, incomprehensible utterances. He opens the mouth for the clear, comprehensible proclamation of Jesus Christ. So to be spirit-filled is to become Christ-centered and Christ-proclaiming. The spirit-filled heart 
is a Christ-centered heart. That means spirit-filled worship is Christ-centered worship. Spirit-filled preaching is always Christ-centered preaching. The Spirit's greatest goal is always to exalt the name of Jesus. The Spirit's movement is always to move people to Jesus. So Spirit speaking is declaring, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that Jesus is Lord. So Peter's preaching was spirit-filled preaching, and that's why it was all about Jesus. Now, we want to be filled with the Spirit, don't we? We want to be part of churches and worship services that are Spirit-filled. We want to be where the Spirit is moving and working. So how do we know where the Spirit is present? Well, some think, the greatest evidence of the Spirit's presence is miraculous works or great emotional experiences. So maybe we have images of people slain in the Spirit, of emotional hysteria, of loud and exuberant worship. Maybe we think Spirit-filled churches are those that talk about the Holy Spirit a lot and emphasize spiritual gifts and experiences. Now hear me clearly. We ought to love and worship the Holy Spirit. We ought to teach clearly about the Holy Spirit. We ought to depend daily upon the Holy Spirit and exercise the spiritual gifts He has given us. For He is God and we cannot do anything apart from Him. But the Holy Spirit who reveals himself on Pentecost as the spirit and power of Christ, always works by the word of Christ. He always applies the works of Christ. He always transforms people into the image of Christ so that everyone will exalt and proclaim Christ. So you know that the Holy Spirit is present and working where Christ is being worshipped, exalted, adored, and obeyed. Now, the Spirit empowered Jesus to do all kinds of miracles, you see in verse 22. But he didn't do so to draw attention to himself. He did so to draw attention to Jesus. The mighty works, wonders, and signs were God's work by God's Spirit to identify Jesus as God's promised and anointed Son. So God still work miracles? Is he still supernaturally active in the world? Of course he is. I'm not against miracles and supernatural experiences. I believe I've experienced at least two supernatural events that I'm aware of. But miracles have never been given just to amaze and wow people. The purpose has always been to point to the authority of God's Word, which is ultimately the Word of Christ. So Spirit-filled churches, I don't believe, are ones that are just drawing attention to supernatural experiences. They are drawing attention to Christ. 
The same is true with emotional experiences. Again, I am not against emotions. I have them. In fact, I have a lot of them. I remember one time I was traveling with Pastor Cruz over at Community OPC. We still didn't know each other quite well. So as we were sitting in the airport, he said, you know, Neil, I, I'm really hoping that one day I can just be more like you in, in ministry because you just, you don't seem to care. Like, just, no, nothing bothers you. I started looking around the airport. Who is this guy talking to? Everything bothers me. I care about things that no one else cares about. Every molehill becomes a mountain I am ready to die on. So I'm not against emotional experiences. I believe Christianity should be emotional. But we don't all have the same emotional makeup. We don't all have the same personalities and feelings. And so we can't judge the Spirit's work and presence by one kind of emotional experience. As if you don't have it, well then you don't have the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the Spirit is not a spirit of hysteria. He is a spirit of order. Remember, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. And Paul says that Spirit-governed worship is done decently and in order. There was ever a verse where Presbyterians would say, Amen. It is 1 Corinthians 14.40. Decently and in order. There are good things about obviously excited worship. It's okay to raise your hands when you sing. It's okay to say amen in a sermon when we're not trying to draw attention to ourselves or prove to others we're really spiritual. But personal emotions and experiences vary from person to person. So they are not the objective indicator of the Spirit's presence and authority. Nor can we just claim, well, I had, I had this supernatural experience and it's now binding on me and on everybody else. I'll tell you one of the supernatural experiences I think that I've had. And I could be wrong. This could have just been nothing other than emotions. But the very moment that I saw my future wife... I believe the Spirit knit my heart to hers. It's never happened before. Thankfully, it's never happened after. But the moment I saw her, I knew I'm going to marry that woman. But can you imagine if I then walked up to her and I said, you know, I just had a supernatural Spirit-filled moment. And the Holy Spirit told me, I'm going to marry you. And then can you imagine if I went to her parents and said, Dr. Sedlicek, they're both doctors. Can you imagine this, this family that I married into? There are seven of them. Five of them are medical doctors. 
One of them is getting her PhD in some kind of brilliant engineering. And the only one who's not going to be some kind of doctor may be the smartest one. And he's very successful in computer something that I don't understand. So when I married into this family, I immediately became the dumbest person in the family. So can you especially imagine that I go up to her parents and I say, you know what? The spirit told me I'm supposed to marry your daughter. I can tell you what I would tell a boy who came to me and said that. I said, well, he didn't tell me that. We can't use these as the objective indicator of the Spirit's authority and presence. The Spirit points us to Christ through the Word, which is our only authority. So this is what I mean when I say that this Jesus is the one God proclaims. He is the one that his spirit is always leading people to tell others about. We should not be distracted from Jesus. Number two, he is the one God raised. Twice, Peter says, this Jesus is the one God raised from the dead. Verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is the one who died and who rose again. Says in verse 23, God delivered Jesus up to be crucified, and verse 24, God raised him up. In fact, Peter says, it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. See, that's the miracle of the resurrection. The miracle was not so much that a man impossibly came back to life. The miracle was that there was a man who died who could not possibly stay dead. Death was incapable of keeping him. Peter says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, Peter's using a somewhat mixed metaphor here and sort of personifying death. So first he describes God is raising God raising Jesus as God loosing the pangs of death. A pang is an intense, often emotional or physical experience. To die, therefore, is kind of depicted like death coming with chains or ropes to, to bind and to hold you. Maybe Peter is alluding to Psalm 18, when David says, the cords of death encompassed me. He says, the cords of Sheol entangled me. Now, Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek, it's not hell, it's just the realm of the dead. It's a more metaphorical way of describing death. So Peter says the resurrection was like God coming, taking death's chains like pangs and, and breaking them and releasing Jesus. It was not possible for the pangs of death to resist the power of God. But as I said, it's a mixed metaphor because the Greek word for pang most often refers to birth pangs. So the image is now of, of death like or, or the grave like a womb and Jesus is inside. Now as 
Every woman who has given birth can tell you it is impossible for that child to stay in the womb. At some point, your body is going to get rid of that child. The birth pangs come upon you, and you start pushing that baby out. And so Peter's saying that like this, death could not keep Jesus in its womb. He had to be released. He had to be born. Paul says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Not that death is Jesus' metaphorical mother. It's just saying resurrection was a new birth to be followed by many new births. And like this, it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. Why? Why was it impossible? Well, first, because it was God's plan to raise Jesus. And as we learned in chapter 1, God's plan is indestructible. It can't be destroyed. So if God planned to raise Jesus from the dead, God was going to raise Jesus from the dead. What God declares, He does. What He declares, He has already ordained. The Father's will will always be done. So if Jesus was God's plan, his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, then it was going to happen. And you see in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you could equally say that Jesus was raised up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And this is what David foresaw and wrote about in Psalm 16. You see, especially here in verse 27, where David says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. See, it was so definite that David could write about it centuries before it would ever happen. So it was not possible for death to hold Jesus because it was God's plan, which cannot be destroyed. But there's a second reason death could not hold Jesus. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. So in, in one sense, when we sin, we now owe death. We owe our life, for death is the curse and penalty of sin. So, following Peter's personification of death, you might say that when we sin, Every sinner is claimed now by death. But what if what we owe has been paid in full? Well, then death no longer has a claim on us. It's like if a bank wants to repossess your house because you can't pay your mortgage. Well, if that debt is paid, they, they can't take your house anymore. That's what happened when Jesus died. When Jesus, who knew no sin, was counted as sin for our sake, died, he paid the debt in full. This is what we sing in that wonderful hymn, Jesus paid it all. He owed nothing, so death could not hold him. Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul writes. And as Paul continues to rejoice in the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.
Jesus pays it all, and we get the victory. Because Jesus wasn't paying his debt. He knew no sin. He didn't owe anything. He was paying our debt. And so just as it was impossible for death to hold Jesus Christ, it is impossible for death to hold those who have been united to Christ by faith. For God's plan was to save his people through Jesus. But that people was not TBD. It was not to be determined. God's plan was always to save a particular people, a people he chose in Christ before he created the world. So Paul writes in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So just as Christ's resurrection was part of God's indestructible plan, Christian, your salvation was part of God's indestructible plan. He chose to save you according to the purpose of his will, the will that cannot be defeated. Which means that if you are a Christian, you may say, I'm a Christian because it was God's eternal plan to save me. Part of his indestructible plan to save me. So if you ever wonder, will I, will I be raised from the dead? Like, Jesus was? Christian, the answer is yes. For just as it was impossible for death to hold Jesus, it is now impossible for death to hold you. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this promise is sure because your debt is paid. Jesus supplied everything we owe. This is why Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection is our justification because in the resurrection, the Father was declaring, it's paid. The sting of death is gone. It's no more dangerous than a wasp without a stinger. So this Jesus is the one God proclaims and he is the one that God has raised and he will raise us with him. Third, this Jesus is the one God has crowned. See, Peter's argument is moving to his conclusion in verse 36. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
So you see, in this sermon, Peter is not trying to argue or prove that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Peter saw it. He's just affirming it. What he's doing is taking the resurrection and ascension of Christ, interpreting it in the lens, through the lens of Psalm 16 and 110, to argue this means Jesus is Lord and Christ. So Peter proclaims Jesus rose, he ascended, and in light of the Psalms, he is Lord and Christ. So let me walk quickly through this argument so you understand it. Both of the Psalms he quotes, the first one you see is Psalm 16, and then in verses 34 and 35, he's quoting Psalm 110. Both of these were written by King David. The key verse in Psalm 16 is the one you find in verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Again, Hades, just the realm of the dead, means this person won't stay dead. Corruption is the word for physical decay. So the body, again, is not going to rot in a tomb. It is speaking of resurrection. So Peter's argument is David could not have possibly been writing about himself because David died and he stayed dead. It says we, we all know where David's tomb is. We go, we dig it up. There's going to be bones because the corpse has rotted. So he's not talking about himself. He's writing about the promised Messiah. It's the Hebrew word for anointed one. The Greek equivalent is the word Christ. It's the title used for God's promised king and savior who would rule forever. And Peter remembers that God promised this to David. He had received this word from the Lord. One of your sons, one of your descendants is going to rule forever. And David understood that doesn't just mean I'm going to have a son. He's going to be king. He's going to have a son and so on and so on. And as each son dies, well, the next one will take his place. David understood that this meant at some point, there's going to be a son of mine who dies, but he's not going to stay dead. He's going to rise again, and that's how he's going to rule forever. So the Messiah, the Christ, would rise. And Peter says, that can only refer to Jesus. We saw Jesus rise. You go to his tomb, it's empty. His body is not rotting in the tomb. Jesus is the Christ of Psalm 16. But Jesus is also the Lord at God's right hand, which David talked about in Psalm 110. How do we know? Well, this is the second part of Peter's argument. He says, we know because the Holy Spirit has come. And the Holy Spirit could only come when the Messiah ascended to God's right hand, was ruling on his throne, and then would send the Holy Spirit. For only the one who received the Spirit as king could then send the Spirit. And we remember John's prophecy in Luke 3 where he says, The Christ is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. But he couldn't do this until he had died, risen, ascended to heaven, was glorified as the Lord, and then would send the Spirit. And again, the disciples 
saw Jesus ascend. But again, you might think, well, they saw him disappear into the sky, but how do they know that Jesus is at the right hand of, of the Father? Because of Pentecost. Because the Holy Spirit had come. Pentecost, as we've seen, was the day of salvation. It was the day of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost was also the public celebration that Jesus had been crowned king and was ruling as Lord. Which is why on this day, Peter is preaching about the king. Pentecost is coronation day. So think of it like this. On September 8th, 2022, Queen Elizabeth died. And on that day, her son Charles became king. However, his public coronation was not until May 6, 2023. So he's already ruling as king, but now there was going to be a public celebration that he was crowned as king. Pentecost is like coronation day. Jesus was already ruling on his throne, but now was the public celebration and confirmation of his rule. The presence of the Spirit meant the king reigns, and he's now sent his Spirit. So this proves that Jesus is both Christ, for he's the only one who can baptize with the Spirit, and Lord, because he could only do that when he sat on his throne. And this is again what David foresees in Psalm 110, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, David is not writing about himself. He did not ascend to heaven to sit at God's right hand. He also refers to this second Lord as his Lord. So in Hebrew, the first Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. The second Lord is Adonai. So Yahweh said to Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord, which again shows that David is writing about the Messiah, not about himself. So Pentecost is the announcement both of our salvation and of Christ's lordship. Indeed, Jesus can only save us because he rules over everything. He is the one God proclaims. He is the one God has raised, and he is the one God has crowned. This is the one and only Jesus, which is why he is the only Lord we can call upon and actually be saved. As I said at the beginning, figments of our imagination cannot save us. Only the one who rules over all has the power to save all who call upon him. So salvation is not just forgiveness, and it's not just transformation. Salvation is submission. To call upon the name of the Lord is simultaneously to bend the knee to the Lord in submission. See, we don't need an agreeable, always affirming Jesus. We need an actually powerful, cleansing, ruling Jesus. We need this Jesus. And the good news is that there is no better Jesus. No matter how hard you try, you cannot possibly conceive of a Jesus who is better than the real one. 
Nothing you come up with is as glorious, beautiful, powerful, trustworthy, gracious, just, compassionate, merciful, and loving as this Jesus. And so Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May our hearts bow before him, our tongues confess him, and our lives submit to him. For God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that we would humbly come before you again by your grace, by your Spirit, to bow before our Lord and to confess his Lordship. Lord, it is a scary thought for us to think we we don't have control over our own lives, but I pray that we would come to see the great comfort that is found knowing that Jesus is in control of our lives and in, in control of everything. Help us to worship and adore him now as we continue to celebrate his rule. We thank you that you have made him and not us both Lord and Christ. Amen.